This is Sheer number 186, Rashi on Isaiah 53, Theology of Pshat, by Professor David Berger. Few, if any, biblical passages have loomed larger in discussions between Jews and Christians in the Middle Ages and beyond uh, than the uh, challenging account of the servant of the Lord or suffering servant uh, in Isaiah 52, 13, through the end of Isaiah 53, uh, a total of 15 verses. So um, I think what we, we need to do with this chapter uh, is uh, familiarize ourselves with it before we proceed. Uh, so if you turn uh, to your Tanakhs, to Yeshayahu uh, Nun Gimel, I'm sorry, Nun Bet, Pasuk Yud Gimel, and uh, you have an English translation here, uh, in the source sheets. Um, let's read uh, a significant part of this passage uh, so that uh, we'll, we'll know what we're talking about. Um, uh, see, my servant will succeed. He will be raised and lifted uh, uh, up and highly exalted. No real controversies about what that means. Uh, just as there were many who were appalled at uh, you, uh, who basically said how, how horrible you look. Uh, so uh, he will sprinkle, startle, uh, um, Many nations, um, uh, because uh, and, and, and kings will be will be uh, stunned uh, by what they see, uh, because uh, they will see things they had never seen. Uh, here, chapter 52 ends, uh, and the speakers change. The speaker in the first three psukim that we read uh, is gone. Uh, right. Avdi, as uh, he calls the servant Avdi, obviously the speaker is God. Now, uh, we move to first person plural. Uh, the general assumption, in terms of the speakers, uh, the general assumption is that these are the nations of the world uh, speaking uh, at the end of days when they see the success of the servant, whoever he is. So, uh, who has believed what we've heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Uh, we don't have to worry about that. Uh, he looked horrible. Uh, basically a repeat of uh, verse 14 of the previous chapter. Uh, uh, and verse 3 continues this description of uh, how miserable he was and appeared. Um, he was despised, shunned by men. A man of suffering and familiar with disease. Uh, and we didn't even look at him because he was so uh, despised. And now, 
comes the transition to their recognition of what the truth has been all along. Uh, and these two verses uh, are the crux uh, of the difficulty of this chapter, uh, which Ibn Ezra introduces by saying, as, uh, at the beginning of, of the entire chapter, Zota parasha kashameot, uh, and it is used by our adversaries. Uh, four and five are not the only verses that point in the problematic direction that we will deal with, but they are the core of the problem. Uh, yet it was our sickness that he was bearing. Uh, and uh, he endured our suffering. We accounted him plagued, smitten, and afflicted by God. When, in fact, uh, and uh, the beginning of verse 4 also said, basically, when, in fact, uh, uh, he was bearing our uh, illness. In fact, he was from or for our sins. Now, what does mecholal mean? One of the fascinating elements of the history of this chapter is that there were three messianic movements of importance that used the word mecholal as a uh, description of uh, what happens to their messiah. And each of them translated the word differently. Uh, and each of them translated the word perfectly for their purposes. Um, Christians said mecholal means pierced. Uh, the translation here says wounded, uh, which is uh, probably better because the typical uh, person who was halal cherev was wounded by a sword, could be killed, could just be wounded. Um, but there's nothing wrong with the translation pierced. Uh, and so for Christians, you had a perfect word with a perfect grammar. Uh, that says what they want. It refers to the crucifixion. Uh, when Shabtai Tzvi converted to Islam, uh, Sabatians translated Mecholal from Chilul. That is, uh, he was profaned from or for our sins. He was forced into a, a situation where in order to bring about the redemption, he had to become a Muslim. So mecholal uh, is a perfect word for Shabtai Tzvi's apostasy. Uh, and in both cases, it refers to the key act that uh, constituted the Messiah's transition from one state to another. Um, when the Lubavitcher Rebbe had uh, a stroke, uh, and at that time, uh, everyone agrees that the overwhelming majority of uh, Lubavitch Hasidim believed that he was the Messiah. Uh, the situation now is a, is a matter for a discussion on another occasion. Uh, uh, but at that time, uh, there was a virtual consensus, I won't say by everyone, but certainly a, an overwhelming majority believed he was the Messiah. Uh, and they took Mecholal uh, uh, to come from Choli. 
Uh, now here the uh, grammar is not so good, uh, but uh, close enough. Uh, and consequently, in the Cholam Yipshayin referred to the stroke of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Uh, that's a, uh, I think, quite remarkable uh, case of, uh, of using one word for uh, uh, different purposes, uh, all of which work uh, for the people who are using them. So, he, this Eved, is Micholal, let's say wounded, Mipesha'enu, Midukame Avonotainu, suppressed, crushed, uh, depressed, uh, as a result of our sins. Uh, and then come, uh, comes a very difficult phrase, uh, and one that will loom large, Musar Shilomenu Alav, the um, uh, standard, as it were, tr- English translations anyway, uh, the chastisement either of our peace or in your translation, the, chast- the chastisement that made us whole from shalem rather than from shalom, um, uh, was upon him. Uh, Musar, chastisement, is some sort of suffering also, uh, connected with Yisurim. <laughs> in context, uh, even though the Nikud is actually uh, not what we would expect, Chavurato uh, uh, has to mean something like Chaburato, with a dagesh in the bed, uh, meaning <laughs> through his bruise or something like that, <coughs> uh, we were cured. Shadal uh, actually suggests that the Baalei HaNikud uh, tampered a little bit with the Nikud uh, in order to, uh, to sort of shift uh, the meaning to something uh, having to do with uh, you know, a group, a chavura, but it, 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 it's very hard to read this as anything, as meaning anything but um, a wound or bruise. Okay. Um, at this point, uh, let's move to verse nine. Uh, although the verses I'm skipping are in, uh, along the same lines as what we've read. In verse 9, uh, we have the assertion that he placed his grave uh, with the wicked. Um, uh, and, uh, and with the rich, uh, with his, uh, in, in his death, presumably, although you know, all of these words are subject to different views uh, or understandings. Bimotav can mean some sort of a uh, structure. But, um, and this all happened because without his being guilty of anything. In verse uh, 10, we have the assertion that he will see his seed and will live a long life, uh, even though we have presumably told, uh, been told that he's been buried. Uh, and then, in the final two verses, the speaker changes again, and it reverts to the same speaker as the last three verses of chapter 52, namely God. Now God is speaking again. Uh, uh, he uh, refers to Avdi. So the speaker is God. Uh, and it says at the end of this verse, Vavonotam hui spo. 
the same sort of thing that it said earlier. Umach ovenu sevalan in verse four, uh, and that repetition is going to be relevant to our discussion. And finally, uh, it says uh, in verse twelve that the servant will be rewarded um, uh, because he uh, he uh, was willing to risk his life. Um, and it ends, he bore the sins of the many, uh, which again uh, recalls uh, a phrase earlier in verse 4, and he will pray for, or he did pray for the sinners. That is chapter 53 of Isaiah. Now, uh, this was probably the most important passage found by early Christians struggling with the paradox of the crucifixion. And the idea that Jesus died uh, for the sins of others probably originates from this chapter. In other words, uh, it is not that Jesus' death for the sins of others is a remarkable fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Uh, it is because of Isaiah 53 that people attributed this purpose to Jesus' death. Uh, no one saw Jesus die for the sins of others. They only saw him die. Uh, the interpretation of his death is a result, not a striking fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And this issue of, uh, of circular argumentation uh, is relevant in, other, uh, in, in some other uh, Christological verses, you know, purportedly Christological verses. Uh, uh, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, for example, is very problematic Historically, uh, the, the census that supposedly brought the family from Nazareth to Bethlehem uh, uh, wouldn't have required, as far as we know about Roman practice, uh, wouldn't have required people to go back to their place of birth, which is what the Gospels say explains why they went to Bethlehem. Uh, and um, uh, very many historians, including very good Christians, uh, don't think Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Uh, and that the Bethlehem story is a result of the first pasuk of Micha chapter five, uh, uh, which uh, which uh, says, You Bethlehem Ephrata, from you there will arise a ruler in Israel whose uh, whose uh, uh, origins go way back, uh, and so that's probably another case where we have an, uh, an assertion about Jesus that results from a biblical verse, which is then cited as evidence that Jesus' career and life fulfilled a biblical verse. There's something similar with the, with the, uh, sol the Roman soldiers uh, giving out his gar sharing his garments, which is based on a verse in Psalm 22, uh, which, uh, and that psalm begins, uh, uh, my Lord, my Lord, why have you, oh God, my God, why have you for, uh, forsaken me, which was said by Jesus on the cross. And therefore, the uh, chapter was understood as a reference to the crucifixion. And uh, this detail uh, was, I would say, almost certainly uh, inserted into the uh, story of the crucifixion because of Psalm 22. Um, a, uh, a friend of mine uh, some of you may have known Ngasha Ris, Alav HaShalom, uh, commented when I talked to him about this issue, 
that this is like the ability of the New York Times to prophesy what will appear in the Yiddish paper two days later. <laughs> uh, now, with respect uh, to Isaiah 53, commentators and polemicists confronted two key questions. Who is the servant and why does he suffer? For Christians, the answers were straightforward. The servant is the Messiah, identified, of course, as Jesus, uh, and he suffers to atone for the sins of humanity. For Jews, uh, the uh, situation was more complicated. Uh, the primary responses to the first question, who is the servant, the, uh, by Jews, uh, were the Messiah, the Jewish people, the righteous sector of the Jewish people, the individual righteous Jew, which is pretty much the same as the righteous sector of the Jewish people, the prophet slash author, uh, and a different prophet. Uh, as far as the causes uh, or the cause of the suffering or its purposes, the second question, uh, some Jews understood the text uh, to affirm simply that the servant suffered as a result of the sinful actions of the perpetrators. If we go back to the key phrases that we've already read, uh, in verse 4, he bore our uh, uh, illness, uh, uh, means that he bore the illness that we inflicted on him. Not that he suffered uh, 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 to atone for us somehow as a result of our illness in a metaphysical sense. He suffered, he bore our illness, illness in this case meaning the illness that we inflicted on him. Where we have the same verb in verse 12, can also be taken that way. Uh, he uh, bore our sin. What was our sin? That we inflicted suffering on him. He suffered our illness or our pain, uh, means he suffered the pain that we inflicted on him. Mecholam uh, is the same. Uh, he was, uh, whatever Mecholam means, he was wounded uh, because of our sins means uh, that he was wounded uh, because of uh, our persecution of him, which is a sin. Medukame Avonotainu is again the same thing. And so too, Vavonotainu, Vavonotam who is bowl in verse 11. So this is, a, this is a way of avoiding any notion that the suffering of the servant uh, is somehow to atone for the sins of others, uh, suffering the sins of others in a, in a theological sense. Um, what made this approach difficult, or more difficult, or especially difficult, were the two key phrases uh, uh, at the end of verse 5. Uh, Musar Shlomenu Alav uh, is challenging if this is the way you want to read the phrase. The chastisement of our peace or, of our, uh, or, the, or that causes our wholeness is upon him uh, is, is hard to explain that way. Maybe it's not impossible, but it's hard. Uh, and palan. Uh, is also difficult to explain that way. Uh, through his wound, we were cured as, as resistance to that interpretation. 
Uh, other Jews understood the uh, passage as a whole uh, to uh, indeed assert that the servant suffered to atone for the sins of another party. Now Rashi's understanding of this passage uh, has attracted particular attention. Uh, the speakers in Isaiah 53, as we know, are the nations of the world. And uh, Rashi uh, has them say something interesting. So let's look on the handout uh, at uh, what Rashi says about the key verses here. I won't read the entire handout, but I will read a few lines. Um, again, page two of the handout. This is, uh, this is source number two. He bore our illness. Skipping the first few words, in the middle of the line, Avalata, now, Anu Roim, we see, this suffering did not come upon him because of his intrinsic lowliness. He suffered pains. So that all the nations should be atoned for through the sufferings of Israel. The illness that uh, we should have uh, suffered came upon him instead. Now I should tell you right away that the, the uh, line I just read, which is of course the line that really jumps out at you. It's not in every printed edition, uh, but, it's, but, but uh, it, it is authentic Rashi. Uh, we go to verse 5 now. Musar Shlomeinu alav. Ba'u alav yisurei ha-shalom lanu. The sufferings for the peace, presumably, that we had, that we experienced, when came upon him. Shehu hayam yusar, he was, uh, he was, uh, he underwent suffering, liyot shalom l'chol ha'ulam, so that there should be peace to the entire world. Now. Rashi doesn't address the obvious question that in, in Jewish tradition there is no such thing that one is suffering for the other. Okay, talk about that. Uh, uh, it's not so clear that there's not such a thing in Judaism, but we'll see. The Radak agreed with you for sure. Uh, yeah. Was, was Rashi fully aware of the Christian interpretation at that time? Yes. Oh, yes. He was. Uh, okay. Okay. So let, you know, maybe we should we should hold. We'll see at the end if there's time for for, for questions. But but Rashi was aware of of uh, this Christian understanding uh, that was too well known to uh, to uh, Jews in Christian Europe. Uh, so generally speaking. Scholars have believed that the prevailing position among Jews uh, before Rashi had been that the servant was the Messiah, because that is what the Talmudic and Midrashic sources say, uh, and that it was Rashi who transformed the hitherto marginal identification with the Jewish people into the one that came to dominate subsequent Jewish exegesis and polemic. Uh, they were also struck by what appeared to be his innovative and theologically problematic position that the Jewish people atones vicariously for the sins of the nations of the world. So, uh, Rashi's stance appeared to cry out for explanation. 
Uh, the most systematic effort uh, to account for this interpretation uh, remains a 1982 article by Joel Rembaum in the Harvard Theological Review, uh, who again, you know, expected that Rashi should have said that this is the Messiah. Uh, and uh, he argues that Rashi's inter collective interpretation was born out of three primary needs. One, to deal with the problem of exile by, quote, affirming the Jews' covenantal relationship with God. Two, to counter the Christian interpretation by avoiding the messianic understanding entirely. Though uh, okay. well, you might, uh, as some of the questions indicated, uh, consider what Rashi says here not the very best way to counter Christian theology. Uh, and number three, to provide an explanation for the horrific experiences that Jews had uh, during the First Crusade. Uh, much of uh, Rembaum's subsequent analysis and mine uh, focuses on this last objective, but uh, I'm interested in more than that. Uh, and that objective is achieved, that is, explaining the suffering of the Jews during the First Crusade by combining the collective interpretation, that is, that the servant is Israel, uh, with the understanding that the text affirms vicarious atonement so we can understand why the righteous communities of the Rhineland uh, suffered the way they did, even though they didn't deserve it. Uh, and uh, Rambam also points to the fact that Yitzchak Baer and Chaim Hillel ben Sasson said at least similar things. Uh, now beyond the, the purported innovativeness of Rashi's interpretation and its presumed usefulness in explaining the tragedy of the crusade. Uh, uh, Rambam points to the identification of the servant as the Messiah in Rashi's commentary on the Talmud. Uh, so this uh, suggests, presumably, that Rashi changed his mind when he wrote his parish on, on, on Isaiah. He originally identified the servant with the Messiah. Uh, and uh, we have to explain why he changed his mind. Now, and th 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 this is not an argument. Uh, because uh, the Talmud understands the servant as the Messiah. Rashi is writing a commentary on the Talmud. Uh, at that point, he's not writing a commentary on Isaiah. So, of course, he explains that the servant is the Messiah. Uh, that, uh, that actually doesn't matter, that particular argument. Um, uh, it's also important to note uh, that uh, we don't know uh, when Rashi's commentary to Isaiah was written. It might not even have been written after the First Crusade. Uh, uh, the First Crusade was in 1096, right? Uh, and uh, Rashi's dates are uh, 1040 to 1105, uh, which leaves only a decade after the Crusade. He could have written this earlier. And the fact that he talks about Jewish suffering uh, doesn't prove it was written after the Crusade. If you look at the Utim written in Ashkenaz before the First Crusade, you will see that Jews considered that they were suffering. Um, Rashi states are easy to remember uh, because of a comment made by a yeshiva college student when he was told that Rashi lived from 1040 to 1105. I once mentioned this and uh, was then told by the person who said it that he said it, and the person, uh, it turns out, who said it is my distinguished brother-in-law, Professor David Schatz. And what he said was, uh, he sure did a lot in 25 minutes. <laughs> uh, in any event. Um, so, uh, 
uh, how might we go about evaluating the suggestion that Rashi's interpretation uh, uh, was driven by the needs to explain the tragedy of the crusade? I think that there are several questions that we might properly pose. Is his interpretation really strikingly innovative? If so, that makes it more likely that it was triggered by an external development, although that's not necessarily the case. Would he have seen it as theologically problematic, which was raised, or straightforward? If Rashi would have seen it as theologically problematic, uh, that makes it more likely that he was pushed by a powerful consideration, although that consideration could again have been his perception of the pshat. Uh, is it reasonable to assume that his normal instincts as to the plain meaning of the text could have produced his interpretation without resort to external factors? Uh, I will argue that the answer is yes. Are there alternate interpretations that he could have set forth that are manifestly, or even not so manifestly, superior to his from the perspective of a medieval or even modern seeker of straightforward meaning. If so, he probably chose this one out of a consideration other than pshat, uh, although we must always remind ourselves that our instincts and his could very well diverge. Uh, finally, is his interpretation one that he would have found attractive as a response to the religious riddle posed by First Crusade suffering. So, let's look at the first questions. Is Rashi's explanation strikingly innovative? The answer is, it's kind of innovative. Uh, the, the interpretation of the servant as, as Israel was, was considerably less common before Rashi among Jews than the Messianic interpretation, which is the one you find in Chazal. Uh, but you do find it. Uh, Rashi is not the first person uh, among Jews to suggest that the servant is Israel. Um, and uh, since many modern scholars, including Christians with no theological motives to do so, adopt this collective interpretation, uh, and since there is no doubt that in several adjoining passages in Isaiah, the servant is manifestly Israel, the view that Rashi's uh, straightforward exegetical instincts could have driven him to this identification of the servant is entirely plausible. To put this more strongly, the servant as Israel is arguably straightforward pshat. Uh, I, I left my Tanakh in here, so I'm gonna take a little walk. I still use this Tanakh uh, because of a story uh, uh, which, I, uh, which I mentioned in uh, my uh, Hespit for Rav Lichtenstein. Um, the, um, many, many, many years ago, when I first started to teach uh, in Yeshiva College, uh, Rav Lichtenstein was still teaching uh, there as well, and there was a Rosh Kolel, and uh, I had to read a verse from the New Testament. And the only New Testament I had at that point was a, an old King James Bible that my father had uh, lent me, uh, which was in very bad shape. 
So I, uh, I took it out to read this New Testament verse, and uh, I hear a student say, his New Testament looks like Rav Lichtenstein's Rambam. <laughs> uh, so uh, I told this to Rav Lichtenstein about 25 years later at a Gush dinner, and he, he enjoyed it. Uh, but uh, as a result, uh, I decided that if I have a Jewish book that looks like this, that looks like Rav Lichtenstein's Rambam, uh, I shouldn't discard it. Uh, so, uh, by the way, it turns out, I found this out because of that Hespet. Uh, a, a person who read that Hespet informed me that he was the student who said this. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't see who said it, I just heard it. And it turned out that the student who said this was uh, Shalom Karmi, whom uh, some of you know. Anyway, um, so uh, let's look at a few verses in this section of Isaiah, that is, in the 40s, uh, that precede 52-53, where the word Evet appears. I'm not going to read them all or anywhere near all. Uh, there are about a dozen uh, uh, verses that uh, refer to the servant of God. Um, seven of those dozen refer unequivocally to Israel. Uh, you, can, you can look if you want. Uh, 41, verses 8 and 9. Without translating, this is an, an absolutely unequivocal assertion of, uh, or, or passage about an Eved who is Israel. Uh, look at 44, verse 1. Listen, uh, Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Again, unequivocal. Verse 2 of that same chapter. The phrase is not unfamiliar to us. Um, verse 21 of chapter 44. Zechor Ele Yaakov, vi Israel ki avdiata, Yetzarticha evidly ata, Israel lo tinasheni. Israel is the Evid. Um, 49, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I take pride. So uh, it, it seems to me that uh, when we come to Isaiah 52, 53, uh, we should uh, come with the expectation that the Evid is Israel. And now there is one passage in, in 15, chapter 50, which probably refers to the prophet as an Evid, uh, and the remaining half dozen uh, are not unequivocal, but they all uh, can, in my opinion, refer to Israel. So a shot commentator looking at the word Eved in, in, in Isaiah in this section ought to expect it to mean Israel, I think. 
Now, what may give us pause is that uh, the uh, important Christian uh, writer, Raymond Martini, who collected uh, rabbinic materials that would presumably prove Christianity, uh, provides, uh, that's a uh, late uh, 13th century work uh, called The Dagger of Faith, a famous work in certain circles. Uh, so what may give us pause uh, is that Raymond Martini provides a version of Rashi's commentary on Isaiah that quotes two Midrashim that affirm the identification of the servant with the Messiah. Uh, and Abraham Grossman, who is a very great scholar, uh, is inclined to see this as an authentic report of an earlier position that Rashi rethought because of the heightened Christian challenge connected with the crusade or the period that immediately preceded it. Um, but uh, first of all, uh, even if we assign authenticity to Martini's version, it presents Rashi as saying only that this is a rabbinic opinion. Our rabbis apply this to the Messiah, and there is a Midrash Haggadah. He doesn't say he thinks that. And even if we assume on the basis of this exceedingly dubious evidence that Rashi once accepted this position, the change need not have had anything to do with considerations extraneous to the text, although it goes without saying that avoidance of the Christian understanding was polemically desirable both before and after the crusade. Uh, let me note as an aside uh, that the collective interpretation has another exegetical advantage, uh, what you might consider a shot advantage. Uh, I once wrote with Michael Wishagrad a little anti-missionary booklet called Jews and Jewish Christianity, uh, which actually uh, saved some people I know about from, uh, from uh, conversion. Um, uh, and I wrote the following uh, two sentences. Uh, As a collective symbol, the servant can be said to suffer any fate suffered by many individual Jews, and he can be said to enjoy the rewards of any large number of Jews. Hence. Although the prophet makes no mention of an intervening resurrection, the servant can go to his grave because of the martyrdom of so many Jews and later see his seed and live a long life. Right, we read those two passages. He, he was buried. And then, uh, which uh, is strange uh, without any reference to the key point. Is that, that mean that he's not dead anymore? Um, there's more to say about that, but not for here. <clears throat> now, Jews also, by the way, try to find some specific phrases in this chapter that don't fit Christianity. Yerezeri Arich Yamim is one, uh, because nobody, uh, no Christian expects uh, Jesus to have children, uh, uh, and uh, living a long life is not living an eternal life. So you can give non-literal explanations. Um, uh, the uh, phrase ishmach ovot vidu'acholi, a person of pains and familiar with illness, uh, refers to a person who has long-standing suffering. Uh, you know, not somebody who suffered for a few hours or even just a few days. So there were there were various other Jewish uh, arguments that were proposed. Uh, in any event. Let's now uh, turn to our next question about Rashi. <clears throat> Would he have seen his interpretation as theologically problematic or as straightforward? With respect to vicarious atonement, uh, uh, despite what the Radak will say, as we shall see, rabbinic texts contain enough assertions 
that the suffering, even death, of the righteous atones for the sins of others, that I don't believe that Rashi would necessarily have been especially troubled by such a concept. What may well have troubled him is the notion that he expresses that the suffering of Israel provides atonement for the nations. But this, as I shall argue, actually militates against the view that he introduced this concept to resolve the theological challenge posed by the Crusades. So, my answers to these questions point away from the historical explanation and in favor of what might be seen as the more naive view that Rashi was motivated by internal exegetical instincts and considerations, that is, his sense of pshant. Moreover, uh, I think that in this instance, we have unusually persuasive evidence, uh, very unusual, uh, that uh, the instincts of other medieval Jews as to the pshat of the key verses accorded with Rashi's understanding and that they did not see a genuinely attractive alternative from a linguistic and contextual perspective. Uh, if I can con uh, demonstrate this convincingly, the judgment that Rashi could have been driven by the quest for pshat would be thoroughly proven. That is, if we can show that other medieval Jews clearly thought that what Rashi explains is pshat, then the chances that Rashi was motivated by Pshat considerations would be stronger. Um, the likelihood that he was would be greatly enhanced. Uh, since the assessment of what is or is not Pshat, especially for a commentator of an era or culture other than our own, is almost always complicated by the subjective judgment of the observer, uh, this is an ambitious assertion that I can prove such a thing. If you should ultimately consider what I say persuasive or even worthy of consideration, uh, then both uh, the assertion itself and the approach that leads us there should uh, be of uh, considerable interest. Um, so my essential argument rests on the following point. In rare instances, a commentator will provide an interpretation that appears so manifestly forced and uncharacteristic that it virtually identifies himself, itself rather, as a contortion designed to avoid what the commentator considered the unacceptable shot. Thus, commentators who, unlike Rashi, really were implacably resistant to the position that Israel suffers vicariously to atone for the sins of the nations, or that anyone suffers vicariously for anyone else, needed to explain the relevant verses in Isaiah 53 differently from Rashi. Uh, had they been comfortable with the view that those verses simply mean that Israel suffers from the sinful behavior of the nations, or that the passage bears some other theologically kosher meaning, they would, I think, have provided the relevant interpretation without resort to what I have described as manifest contortions. When they instead engage in such contortions, they tell us that they regard the unacceptable interpretation, the theologically unacceptable interpretation, as the apparent shot, and they must avoid it at all costs. Thank you. Uh, 
So, uh, we're going to look at two commentators and one polemicist uh, to uh, what I think uh, you know, will we'll demonstrate this uh, avoidance, this effort to avoid uh, the uh, interpretation of Rashi, the vicarious interpretation of Rashi, the atonement interpretation of Rashi at all costs. So let's look at source three of Rabbi Shaya Mitrani. You remember that the key, the, the, the most recalcitrant phrases for the non-vicarious atonement understanding of, of, of Isaiah 53 were the chastisement of his peace, of our peace rather, uh, was upon him uh, and with his wound or through his wound, through his bruises, we were cured. What does Yeshayahu Mitrani do with these verses, or these phrases? So let's look at it. Musar Shlomeinu alav, Musar umesulak haya Shlomeinu mei alav. Musar doesn't mean chastisement from the Yaseir. Musar here comes from the root Lasul, uh, his uh, peace, the peace of the servant. What is the peace of the servant? Our saying shalom to him, our wishing him peace. Is Musar is removed from him. It doesn't say may Allah in the verse, it says Allah. Uh, and so, but uh, says Rabbi Shayahu Mitrani, Musar Shlomeinu Alav means our greetings of peace were removed from him. Sha'af Shalom Lo Hayunot Nimlo, that these people who are the speakers did not even uh, wish him shalom. What does that mean? When we beat him up, we felt cured. Why? Because uh, we were so happy uh, at his suffering that we uh, felt cured. Um, now, I doubt, although I, you know, I don't know, these are subjective matters, but I doubt that anyone here thinks that this is the first interpretation that ran through Rabbi Isaiah's mind. What we are witnessing is the exercise of Herculean efforts to avoid what he would normally uh, see, what he would have normally seen, as the straightforward meaning. Uh, and what this means is that Isaiah of Trani's fundamental instinct was to understand this verse as a reference to Israel's vicarious atonement for the speakers who are the nations of the world. But this instinct just had to be wrong and desperate measures were called for. And uh, now let us turn to Radak. Uh, here the approach to the text is very different, in a way even antithetical 
But if we apply the same approach that we did to Rabbi Isaiah of Trani, Radak's contrasting exegetical strategy leads, perhaps ironically, to the same conclusion about the author's instinct regarding the straightforward meaning of the key verses. So now let's look at, uh, at source number four. Uh, <coughs> he bore our illness. Uh, and uh, we heard this before. A son will not bear the sin of the father. And the father will not bear the sin of the son. Certainly not one person for another person who is a stranger to him. And certainly not one nation for another nation. How do we explain these phrases? Uh, I'm going to skip the remainder of the paragraph. He just says that, uh, that other apparent parallels in the Bible are not really parallels. So we go to the next passage, which is his answer to the question, what does this mean? The assertion made by the nations in this chapter he bore our illness. And similar phrases. These are their own words, that is, it's their own view. It's not the truth, it's what they think. It's not that Israel actually suffered for the sin of the nations. That's what they will think when they will see at the time of the redemption that the religion held by the Jews all along was the truth. And their own religion was false. They'll recognize that their religion has, is false. They will say according to their own idea. Why were the Jews suffering? And we didn't. It wasn't because of their sin. They had the true faith. Who were, who were living in peace. We held a false belief. It must be that the suffering that should have come upon us uh, came upon them instead. They atoned for us. And we thought uh, when Israel was in uh, exile um, if I could paraphrase this a little bit, uh, the Radak says that uh, at the first moment of redemption, when the nations will see that Judaism is true, they will not they will they will recognize the fundamental truth of Judaism, but they will not instantaneously free themselves from every 
erroneous theological notion that they had held all of these years as Christians. So they are still operating with this cockeyed Christian theology of vicarious atonement. And so even though they realize that Jews were right all along, they don't know that Judaism rejects the idea of vicarious atonement, that they haven't learned yet. So they say this at the beginning of the redemption. In other words, these verses are false. Um, uh, and that's because he explicitly rejects the theology of these verses. Now, uh, one would expect th that a commentator who regarded this conception as utterly erroneous and felt comfortable with an alternative interpretation that expresses the truth would have provided that alternative understanding. That is, if there are that thought, there's another way to explain these verses, not like Rashi, uh, in a way that reflects the religious truth, uh, he would have explained them that way. Instead, he affirms that the verses assert a falsehood. Um, now, I suppose that someone may regard this approach as so clever a thrust to the heart of Christian theology that Radak would have preferred it to a perfectly or relatively smooth reading that would have had the newly fully enlightened nation speak the truth. Uh, I consider such a preference for verses that are false to verses that are true improbable in the extreme. But there's even more. You will recall that verses 11 and 12 in, uh, in two places echo verses 4 and 5. Right? Avonotam hu yispo echoes umachobeinu svalam. Behu chet rabim nasa echoes achein cholayeinu hu nasa. But who is the speaker in verses 11 and 12? God. Uh, God doesn't make theological mistakes. Uh, and so you have to interpret virtually the same phrases uh, that appear in uh, verses 11 and 12 as statements of truth. And you have to find a way to have them mean something other than what they meant in verses 4 and 5. Uh, and uh, the, the, the Radak does something like that. Uh, I mean, you can, you can look at what he says uh, in, uh, the, on the next page of the handout, the, the, which is the last line of Radak, the first page of page four of the handout. In his righteousness, he What does it mean that he will suffer the sins of the nations? Uh, because through him, the world will have peace and that will help them too. It's, that's not vicarious atonement anymore. Uh, but back in the earlier verses when the nations were speaking, it was. Uh, so that uh, I think that the, the dochak here, the difficulty here, uh, uh, is... Uh, is uh, A very powerful indication uh, that uh, the Radak clearly thought that the pshat of these verses is what Rashi says. Uh, and he, he's got to somehow deflect the theology by saying that the nations are saying this mistakenly. Um, and now let's go to the polemic. Yeah. Is it possible that in both cases, 
they also were avoiding the shot that it's Mashiach. I mean, both of these Mepharshim uh, could have thought that the, the real underlying shot is that it's Mashiach, but they were avoiding it because of, they were also avoiding that. Okay, so so, so reject Rashi. All right, so with with with, with respect to that, uh, that was the reason why I read you uh, uh, five uh, or six verses uh, in the earlier chapters of Yeshayahu to indicate that there uh, that, that there is certainly no significant impediment, to put it mildly, to saying that the servant is Israel. So now let's go to the polemicist. Um, Moses HaKohen of Tordesillas uh, wrote a polemical work called Ezer HaEmunah in 14th century Spain. So needless to say, he addresses our passage. Uh, any polemicist uh, worth uh, anything uh, has to address this passage. So let's look. Uh, at uh, in the you know in the eleven minutes that we have left, uh, at uh, this passage. Um, my servant will prosper. The servant is uh, each righteous person in Israel. Um, because of considerations of time. Uh, uh, let's uh, let's uh, uh, look just at a few of these lines. Kasher shamemu, line three. Uh, they will be. Uh, they, they used to be appalled by the lowliness of Israel. Um, they want when they wanted to. Uh, say a nasty thing about someone, they would call him a Jew. Um, uh, and uh, just as they Kenya Zegoim Rabim, Shifluto Vidaluto, it should be, I think. Uh, just as they were uh, astonished at his lowliness and poverty, Kenim Shob Goim Rabim, he is going to end up ruling many nations. Um, uh, let's skip to the end of the uh, next line. They will not have ever seen such a great uh, value, such a great standing for any nation. Now, do you see anything here that points to tzadikim mi Israel? Is there anything here that should make this anything other than Israel as a whole? The, 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 the notion that this is, uh, you know, limited to tzaddikim uh, is almost bizarre. But we'll see why. Um, what's even more bizarre at first glance is what comes at the end of this first long paragraph and the beginning of the second. Uh, he has taken us through verse 3 of chapter 53. And we're up to Achein Cholayenu Hunasa. We now realize that he was bearing our illness. And he says that the nations of the world who are the speakers in the first three verses of chapter 53 stop speaking right before Achein Cholayenu Hunasa. And from now on, the masses of Jews who are not the tzaddikim are starting to speak. Uh, what is the evidence for this in the text? Uh, the answer is, as 
as absolute a zero as you will ever find. Uh, there is absolutely nothing to justify the notion that the speakers change here. And no one else that I know of ever said that, nor should they have said it. Okay. So what does Hamon Yisrael say, all the things that we've just talked about. They suffered for our sins, they didn't deserve it, we deserved it, uh, and, uh, and now we see that, uh, that uh, they were suffering from uh, our sins or for our sins. Um, now what's going on here, I think, as clearly as clear can be, is that uh, Moses HaKoyin of Tordesillas is perfectly comfortable with the notion of vicarious atonement, but he is not comfortable with the notion that the Jewish people suffer vicariously to atone for the sins of their oppressors. That is not acceptable. And so, uh, in order to avoid that consequence, he uh, makes this move uh, which is entirely uh, unacceptable, I think, from any shot perspective. There's just no basis for it, but that's why he does it. So what does this tell us? It tells us that Moses HaKohen of Tordesillas uh, saw no alternative to Rashi's understanding uh, that this is a statement by one group of people about the vicarious atonement that is experienced by other people on their behalf. In other words, the shot of this passage, according to Moses HaKohen, uh, is clearly what Rashi said it is. Um, so, what I think all of this means <clears throat> uh, is that the vicarious atonement interpretation of Isaiah 53 demonstrably exercised a powerful attraction on purely exegetical grounds for medieval Jews other than Rashi. Uh, in other words, they thought it was a straightforward shot. Uh, there is every reason to believe that when Rashi preferred it, he was expressing precisely this attraction. Uh, it may be that his identification of the servant as Israel was driven by both textual and polemical considerations, and it probably was, but there is every reason to think that he considered it very well supported by a straightforward reading. Well, let me conclude with one more observation. The view that Rashi was motivated to explain the text in a way that deviated from precedent out of theological motives that is, to account for the tragedy that befell the Jews of the Rhineland in 1096, requires us to weigh the likely attractiveness in his eyes of Jewish suffering as atonement for the nations. You remember what Moses HaKohen thought of that. To put the matter sharply, would Rashi really have constructed out of theological rather than exegetical motives a conviction that Jews were murdered during the crusade to atone for the sins of their murderers? On a broader canvas, Medieval Jews uh, regularly wrestled with the problem of exile and suffering, providing a broad range of explanations. Uh, a whole list, sin, sins of the fathers, uh, filling the measure of their enemies who would then be completely destroyed. Um, uh, God is medaktek with tzaddikim kechut uh, and on and on. 
but outside of commentaries on Isaiah 53, I have not found a single instance, neither in Rashi nor elsewhere, where the proposed explanation was that the Jewish people suffers to atone for its oppressors. Uh, in formulating his interpretation of Isaiah 53, uh, I do not believe that Rashi was driven by a theological imperative. His understanding of a difficult passage drove him to set aside a theological obstacle and propose an interpretation that may have made him at least somewhat uneasy. Uh, if you want to take a look, not now, uh, at Rashi's commentary on the verse, which I did reproduce here, uh, you will see that he gives an explanation that's a little bit different from what he's been saying, uh, uh, what he said in verses 4 and 5, which may indicate you know, some degree of uh, discomfort with what he said. But he said what he said because that's what he uh, thought the verses mean, I think. Um, uh, my hope is that this presentation has implications that go beyond Isaiah 53 by suggesting a means of assessing what commentators considered the shot of a passage by approaching the matter through the back door, uh, not by meeting the notoriously difficult challenge of defining and applying their definition of pshat directly, but by looking at manifestly anomalous interpretation that points to the interpretations that they were desperately trying to avoid.